0: Saluton, on al planeta, mono. Hello and welcome
1: to Planet Money. I'm Jacob Goldstein. And I'm Robert Smith. Today is Friday, August 12th, and that was Sherry Wells welcoming you to the podcast in Esperanto.
0: Today on the show, yes, there is a lot to worry about right now in the U.S. economy. But we do have at least one big thing going for us. The US dollar is still the undisputed center of the global economy. And so today we're going to talk to people around the world
1: who use the US dollar even when they are not doing business with the United States of America. And we will let you in on how this system makes Americans even richer. But first we have today's Planet Money Indicator. Jacob, take it away. Today's Planet
0: Money Indicator 15. Regulators in France, Italy, and Spain, they just imposed a 15-day ban on short-selling stocks in certain European banks and financial companies. Short-selling, of course, this is a way to profit when the price of a stock goes down. What short-sellers do is they borrow the stock, they sell it right now, and then they buy it back at some point in the future. And, of course,
1: they're banning short selling because their stock is going down. Nobody ever bans right. short selling when their stock goes up. Oh, no, then it seems like a fine idea. But there have been all these rumors flying around, right, about French banks in particular. And, and as we know, banks are hugely vulnerable to rumors. Once you think your bank has no money, people start to pull money out of a bank and it becomes
0: sort of a, a self-fulfilling rumor. The bank is actually in trouble. That's exactly right. And that is definitely the rationale for this kind of temporary ban. But there is a counter argument. And the counter argument is short sellers are doing what investors typically do. They are making bets based on the best information available to them. They're betting against these banks, not because of some false rumors, but because of what's true. There's this sovereign debt crisis in Europe. European banks hold lots of sovereign debt and that's a big risk for them. And even when you ban the short sellers, the rumors remain. You right. can't you, ban You those. can't ban a rumor. Yeah. <laughs>
1: exactly. Thank you, Jacob. Uh, sure. Let's uh, let's do the podcast. All right. Let's do it. If you're one of our listeners in the United States, we have to tell you about this great deal. There is a tailwind, a force that is making your life just a little bit better every day, a little bit of free money in your pocket. It's a special prize that you get to enjoy Simply because you are an American. But if you are not an American, this force is actually costing you a little bit of money every day. It transfers to the United States. This magic advantage, this little transfer of wealth, is in your wallet right now. It's called the U.S. dollar. There are, of course, hundreds of currencies in the world. But only one, the U.S. dollar, is considered the international language of money. It's like a financial Esperanto.
0: Everyone knows what it means and everyone knows what it's worth. All around the globe, every day, people are buying and selling things with U.S. dollars, even when the business they do has nothing to do with the United States. To explain why this happens, we have to leave America, figure out why the dollar is so popular everywhere else. We talked this week to Roberto Chicola. He's a businessman in Sao Paulo, Brazil.
2: Well, I basically am an an instant coffee exporter. I export instant coffee from Brazil all over the world. I mean, there are more than 40 countries that we export.
0: 40 countries. So you could imagine what just a logistical problem currency could be for Roberto, right? He, he buys his green coffee beans from Brazilian growers and pays to have the coffee roasted and turned into instant coffee and packed into jars and tins. And, you know, for all of that, just like you'd expect, he pays in the Brazilian currency, the real. Then when he goes to sell the coffee around the world, he has this challenge, right? How does he do business in
1: 40 different currencies? And of course he doesn't. Roberto slaps a price tag on every shipment in U.S. dollars. And check out who is willing to pay those dollars.
2: Singapore, Malaysia, Uruguay, Russia, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan. The majority of our trade is in dollars.
0: And that price tag in dollars, it solves the same kind of problems for Roberto's customers in Russia and Malaysia and Turkmenistan. They may be buying coffee not just from Brazil, but maybe from Nicaragua and Ethiopia and Indonesia. They need to simplify their lives, too. They need to pick one currency to trade in, and they tend to pick the dollar. Yeah, and there's no law that says it has to be the dollar. But
1: look at it from their point of view. I mean, there are a ton of dollars floating around the world. Just about every business can fairly easily get their hands on some dollars. The U.S. dollar is stable. And, you know, in spite of the news that we hear, in spite of the financial crisis and all the political stuff, people around the
0: world still trust the U.S. dollar. And they do this even though it means you have to do essentially – All these extra trades, right? When Roberto sells coffee to Uruguay. That's right next door to Brazil. That's right next door. His Uruguayan buyer will trade his Uruguayan pesos for dollars, send those dollars to Roberto. Roberto will take those dollars and trade them into Brazilian reais. But even that extra hassle, it's worth it. We talked
2: about this with Barry Eichengreen. He's an economist at UC Berkeley. It's easier for them to do two foreign exchange trades, both of which involve the dollar both of which are standardized, both of which involve a a very low fee or transactions cost because the market exists and everybody else is doing the same transactions.
0: It's sort of like the hub. It's sort of like all the flights go through Chicago O'Hare or something. Wherever you want to go, you go from wherever you are into dollars and then from dollars to wherever you're going.
1: That's right. And the cool thing about this is the more people that use the dollar as that airline hub for the world, the more systems are in place to support it. So, for instance, the dollar doesn't just make currency calculation easier. It can be used to
0: reduce the amount of risk for businesses. Right. Like in Roberto's case, he's buying his coffee and paying his workers in Reis. And then he's signing these big long-term contracts with customers all over the world. They don't want to deal in reais. And this creates a big risk for Roberto. If the value of the Brazilian real changes against the value of the other currencies, he can get totally screwed. A, a deal that would have been profitable for him can end up being a big loss just because of currency fluctuations.
1: There is a cheap, easy way for Roberto to protect himself against that risk. He can get a bank to guarantee him a constant exchange rate for the life of the contract. That way it doesn't matter what happens in the, in the world currency exchange rate markets. The bank is promising
0: to protect him against all those fluctuations. This kind of a deal, it's a currency hedge, and it's super easy for Roberto to do if he does it in dollars, it's cheap and it's fast. He can do it in euros, but that's more complicated and more expensive. For any other currency, it's, it's not even really an option for him. So, Roberto uses the dollar.
2: Yeah, everybody uses the dollar to hedge their operations in Brazil. And I can tell you that is, uh, I mean, everybody that is in the foreign trade in Brazil has to do that. If they don't do it, I mean, they're going to be running a big risk.
1: So as you can see, using the dollar is a real benefit to Roberto. It makes his life more predictable. It makes it more easy. It makes it so he can hedge his bets in the U.S. dollar. But but still, let's be honest here. It is still a hassle to use
0: somebody else's money every day. And it's a hassle in lots of different ways for lots of different business people all over the world. I mean, even just changing money, even into U.S. dollars, the currency that everybody wants, even something as simple as that Can be a hassle. Another guy we talked to this week was Johnny Mearns. He's a South African businessman who ran an LED lighting company until a few months ago. And every week or two in his business, he would buy supplies from China. And, of course, China keeps its currency loosely tied to the dollar as part of its strategy to
1: drive exports. Johnny Mearns' suppliers, of course, they want to be paid in dollars. And here's what he
0: had to do to get dollars. We will fill out an exchange form which then needs to be taken to the bank. So you do this online? Is this actually paper? What is the exchange for? No, it's actual paper, three pages of paper that you need to fill in, and uh, then that gets taken to the bank, and that takes about two to three days to clear before they send the money So for Johnny, using the dollar is, in fact, the least bad option. No no Chinese supplier wants his South African rand. But still, he's got to do this every week or two. He's got to pay an exchange fee every time. And this is where we start to see
1: how the United States gets a huge advantage from the system. U.S. companies don't have to go changing their currency all the time. This kind of hassle that Johnny has to put up with in time and in money, it costs a fee to change currency, is basically a non-American tax that every non-American company has to pay every time it trades.
0: And, and of course, if you're a U.S. business, you don't even have to think about this, right? You don't think about it. You buy from your Chinese supplier in U.S. dollars.
1: But that's not the only advantage. There is another even bigger thing that the U.S. gets from having the dollar being so important in the world – Big institutions all around the globe have to hold huge amounts of dollars. It's it's like a monetary safety net for them if they want to trade and everyone wants to trade. There's a term for this. It's called reserve currency. At least
0: since World War II, the dollar has been the world's reserve currency. And Barry Eichengreen, the the economist we talked to, he points out that if you're a big institution holding billions of dollars, or in the case of China's central bank, more than a trillion U.S. dollars, you really don't have much choice. You're going to have to buy a lot of treasury bonds. You can't put a trillion dollars in a savings account and there is – Or in a mattress. Or or under a mattress. And there is no other investment that is safe enough and liquid enough for a central bank to hold as reserve. You have to buy treasury bonds. You have to lend that money to the
2: U.S. government. So this exorbitant privilege, that was the name that Charles de Gaulle and his finance minister attached to it in, in the 1960s, means that U.S. interest rates are lower than they would be otherwise because foreign central banks and governments find it convenient to hold our treasury bonds, our our debt instruments, and they lend to us more freely than they would otherwise. And
1: all these people really eager to lend money to the U.S. means that the U.S. government can borrow money at incredibly low interest rates.
0: And that in turn means the U.S. government spends less money than it otherwise would on interest payments. It means... Americans pay less in taxes.
1: And it gets better than that for the
0: USA. On top of that, interest rates on a lot of
1: other loans are tied to treasury rates. So that means that China's need to hold a trillion dollars leads directly to your mortgage or your student loan having a lower interest rate than it otherwise
0: would. It saves you money. Just because you're an American, China's giving you a special deal. So all these benefits for businesses, for individual borrowers, for the U.S. government— they mean Americans' annual incomes are maybe 1% or 2% higher than they would be otherwise, according to Barry Eichengreen. The, the global dollar, it's worth hundreds of billions of dollars a year to the U.S. economy.
1: You know, if this were a slightly more jingoistic podcast, we could end it right here. We could just say, awesome. This is the best thing I've ever heard. We provide a service by giving our dollar out there, and we reap enormous benefits. And USA. USA. All
0: right. All right. But you know, we can we can get outside the U.S. mindset and imagine other countries around the world might look at the U.S. and say, "Hey, why don't we get a reserve <laughs> currency? Why should the U.S. get all the benefits?"
1: We see them in our rearview mirror approaching rapidly, and even though the dollar's been king in our lifetimes, there's just no real reason why it has to stay that way. I mean, if we'd done this podcast hundred years ago, if we distributed it to you on a wax cylinder, it would have been the only way. But if we'd done hundred years ago, we would have been talking about how awesome the British pound is, and why everybody in the world loves British pounds, and, and how, how those bloody limes have all the luck and privilege
0: from their currency. And maybe 20 years from now, the robots that have replaced us and are doing the Planet Money podcast, will be talking about how awesome some other currency is. Affirmative. But, but for right now, Eiken Green says, when you look around the world, there just is not a good alternative to the U.S. dollar. First of all,
1: if we were going to find an alternative, it would need to be a really big economy. I mean, central banks are going to buy trillions of dollars of bonds in this stuff. So currencies that seem really strong and safe, like, like the Swiss franc and, or Canadian dollar, they're just not big enough to be
0: reserve currencies. Okay, so let's think big. You got Japan. That's the world's third biggest economy. What about the yen? The problem is that, yeah, the U.S. economy has some trouble, not nearly the (laughs) trouble that the Japanese economy has. Japan's economy has been withering for decades. It's not at all popular with global investors or traders. Central banks do not want to tie themselves to Japan. So the yen is off the list.
1: So we need to find an economy that's big enough and we need to find an economy that is growing or at least not shrinking at a terrible rate. And who are we kidding? There's only two alternatives to the U.S. dollar,
0: the euro and the Chinese renminbi. And when you put it that way, it becomes abundantly clear why – Right now, there is no alternative to the U.S. dollar. You can say what you want about the dollar. You can say what you want about the U.S. economy, but the dollar is in a much better position right now than the euro or the renminbi. You know, it's weird. Just a few
1: years ago, everyone was talking about the euro as as a potential reserve currency. Uh, central banks were adding euros to their reserves. Yeah, but since the financial crisis, I mean, that's been basically been put on hold. Now people are openly questioning whether the euro is even going to exist in a few years. This plainly
0: is not a good sign if you want your currency to be a reserve currency.
1: And then the renminbi is tightly controlled by the Chinese government. And, you know, pretty much by definition, if you're going to have a reserve currency, it needs to move freely across borders.
0: Right. So the renminbi is off the table now, but China's economy is growing. It's probably going to be the biggest economy in the world soon. And we asked Barry Eichengreen to list the steps China would have to take to make the renminbi a reserve currency.
2: Well, how much time do we have? (laughs) They have to take a lot of steps. There would have to be very far-reaching changes in the Chinese economic system, no question about it. So they would have to create confidence on the part of international investors that their banks were normal banks and the government wasn't interfering in the operation of the banks. Only then would other governments and, and foreign central banks be willing to park a significant amount of their reserves in Shanghai. They would have to remove many of the restrictions on the ability of people to bring money into and take money out of the country. China actually wants to do
1: these things and, and Eichen Green thinks that they will eventually, not tomorrow, not next year, but you know maybe
0: 10 years from now, 20 years from now, this list of things could actually happen. And, and more broadly, this idea that we've been talking about in the show of how it makes sense for one single currency to dominate, that that's what makes it easiest for everyone, even that big idea is changing basically because technology is making it easier for people to deal with a few different currencies.
2: You know, once upon a time, it may have been true that there was only room in the world for one true global currency. But I think we figured out how to make it easy to compare – Currency values in real time. Everybody now can look at their smartphone and figure out what the price of a, uh, a euro or a Chinese renminbi is in, in terms of dollars.
1: You know, it may seem soon, but Eichen Green predicts that in ten years or so, we will probably be living in a world with multiple reserve currencies. He thinks China is going to radically transform its economy, make the renminbi a much bigger player, and he thinks the Europeans are going to get their act together and save the euro. So, in this world that Eichen Green's imagining, the dollar is still important. It's just not as
0: important as it is right now. You know, once you hear that kind of framework, we do have to answer this one last question, right? We've talked about how the U.S. gets huge benefits from being the world's reserve currency. If I can green is right and what we end up with in a decade or two is a world with multiple reserve currencies, a world where the dollar is far less
2: important than it is today, what does that mean for the U.S.? In the best of all worlds, it will occur gradually and smoothly U.S. banks and firms and households will have to do business using other people's money. So U.S.
1: businesses might have to fill out a few more forms. It might take a few more days to do deals in renminbi. And and maybe a little slice
0: of profit gets lost to those currency transaction fees. And it would cost
2: the U.S. government and homeowners and students more to borrow money. But it would be no disaster. On the other hand, one can imagine a a real crisis of confidence in the dollar that at some point in time down the road, foreign central banks and governments and private investors throw up their hands and, and say, this is not a serious country. We'd better look harder for other places to put our money. And at that point in time, if those other places exist, there could be flight away from the dollar and the dollar crash that people worry about. And that could, in fact, be seriously disruptive to the operation of financial markets and, and to the stability of the economy. That's the thing to worry about.
1: For more on the history of how the U.S. dollar and King and, and how it might get dethroned eventually, you should pick up Barry Eichengreen's book, Exorbitant Privilege. It's a great read. I
0: love it. I'll link to the book from the blog at npr.org slash money. You can leave us a comment on the blog. Let us know what you thought of today's podcast. You can also email us at planetmoney at npr.org. And if you are listening to the Planet
1: Money podcast outside the United States, I'll use the Esperanto Dankon. Thank you. And a special goodbye and obrigado to our summer intern, Philippe Miranda. He's leaving us to go back to school in Boston. He's been a great help, and and we're going to miss you, Philippe. I'm Robert Smith. And I'm Jacob
0: Goldstein. Thanks for listening.